Hi, welcome to another episode of Ampere Amplified. My name is Mahesh Madhav. I'm a performance engineer here at Ampere. And today I'm joined by Narin Nayak. He is a director of application engineering here at Ampere. Welcome, Narin. Thank you for having me. It seems like the two of us, we're like two peas in a pod. Both of us are working in the application space, workloads, and understanding what customers are running mm -hmm. in the cloud. I'd like to have you share a little bit about what you do and what constitutes the relationship that we have with customers. Uh, good question. So uh, I lead a team of performance engineers, performance and power optimization engineers. Our job primarily is to be the outward-facing software voice of Ampere. And what I mean by that is we work closely with customers. We are exposed to how they run things at scale, workloads, benchmarks, alignment with them. That's mainly our job. But as part of that, we work very closely with our sales teams, our product teams, as well as our uh, internal architecture teams. Because some of the things that we learn working with customers are valuable enough to bring back to Ampere. So we can influence our future products and make sure that something that we design two years out is going to be relevant for, for our customers. That's a, a really good thing you mentioned is that there's a, a feedback loop. And when we treat the customers well and listen to their feedback, we can actually incorporate that feedback and create a great next generation of products. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and typically in my experience, it, it takes three to four years for that feedback loop to be complete. One of the things I've seen at Ampere is it's a lot more agile. There is a rapid cadence, you know, there's a yearly cadence of CPUs, right? Uh, products that we put out there. And it doesn't take too long for that feedback to be incorporated into a product. I think that speaks a little bit to our agile methodologies of hardware, software, engineering, co-design. Absolutely, right? it does, yeah. And, and one of the things that I've learned uh, working with customers directly is, you know, a close partnership with customers is what is required for a product that makes sense. I've seen way too many teams in, or companies in, in my past life where you design something that is, that works very well for a specific benchmark or benchmarks. And, you know, three years later when you've designed a product, it's really no longer relevant. Right, right. Yeah, the, the market evolves, especially the market that we deal with, the cloud market, it evolves very, very rapidly. There's, there's innovation that happens almost on a monthly basis. There's new paradigms and, and, you know, incorporating those into our design philosophies, uh, super, super critical. Yeah. So how do we do that? How do we make sure that we're not designing ourselves to a point where we're no longer, uh, workload may not be relevant and we have accidentally created something that may not, may not work in general? Right. So. One of the things that makes our job a bit easier is that we have a focus on one market, uh, the cloud computing market. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't care about, you know, making CPUs for phones. We don't care about laptops. Frankly, we don't care about codes that were written 30 years ago. Yep. Right. Uh, so it makes our job a little easier. You've got fewer customers who are technically incredibly savvy and have the resources to move markets. Uh, now that's the easier part of our job. The, the more difficult part is what is the cloud? You know, the cloud is, it's, it's a nebulous term at this point. Is the cloud just cloud native? It's not, right? Is it HPC? Yeah. Uh, is it the enterprise? Everything's moving into the cloud. Companies are literally lifting and shifting workloads, moving them into the cloud. And over the years, they tend to become more cloud-like. 
in order to utilize resources more efficiently to sort of take advantage of the elasticity of the cloud and mm. things like that right so you can't design a cpu that is just meant for cloud native workloads you you got to worry about other things that the cloud runs anticipating where the cloud will be and what the cloud will run 5 years from now uh, it's not easy right so you you said this in in your past interviews as well we designed towards the midpoint right we're not designing cpus to be really really good hpc engines right big fat vector units that work beautifully for hpc loops but really do nothing for integer code right it's, it's something that we don't believe in right we would rather invest that real estate to to give customers uh, more density compute density mm-hmm. uh, either they could use those if they're public cloud providers they could use those for you know more vm density uh, to run integer workloads if they do run hpc workloads they're typically in the context of a virtual machine and you know in our experience throwing more cores at the problem specifically specially designed cores that work well for integer workloads seem to do very very well at hpc workloads as well even though they weren't designed explicitly for that purpose right so th- th- those are some of the design philosophies we-, we don't want to be like you said we don't want to paint ourselves into a corner yeah for a specific workload because that's not what the cloud is about today you mentioned a couple of things scale and consolidation and all of these seem to hint at the benefit of larger core counts mm-hmm. in a CPU. Can you talk about Ultra and where we're positioning Ultra and Ultra Max right. with our vCPUs? Yeah, so Ultra is what one would come up with if they had a clean slate and ask themselves, what kind of a CPU could I build if I built one for the cloud? Again, we don't care about laptops, we don't care about phones, we don't care about having 5 gigahertz single threaded performance right that's not what the cloud is about so if you started with a clean slate what does the cloud care about really really good single thread performance fantastic socket level performance a decent core count predictability of performance because the cloud is multi tenant you are running different types of workloads and you're running workloads that are owned by different customers so having a customer run something on your infrastructure today and getting really really good performance maybe better performance than what they paid for is in other markets might be a good thing in the cloud that's a bad thing why because tomorrow they might not get that level of performance and they won't be happy keeping a customer happy is yep. super important for these csps so predictability of performance is super important power efficiency right making sure you're not hitting your thermal design powerpoint constantly leaving a little bit of headroom for growth Right these are the things the cloud cares about above all security and privacy right and performance really means nothing uh, if you can't guarantee security and privacy we've heard about uh, over the last 3 years about the side channels attacks right the csps are right at the center of these kind of issues because they are multi tenant by default so those are the things that the cloud would care about right those are pretty much the things we wrote up on a on a drawing board when we designed ultra mm-hmm. so ultra was meant to run you know microservices in containerized environments with dynamically orchestrated frameworks right it can do other things as well but that's what it was primarily designed for you had mentioned predictability of performance and i know that's something that uh, multi tenant customers are are really seeking how how does ultra give us predictability of performance so there are two aspects that 
you know, there, there are a lot more aspects to, to predictability. There are a lot more features you can put into a, a, a CPU that can guarantee predictability. In the end, we are talking about multi-tenant environments. So there is going to be resource sharing. The question is, can you mitigate that and how much of that can you mitigate? So two specific features I'll talk about that were essentially born in uh, on the client side of CPUs, right? The, the client CPUs, simultaneous multi-threading. Well, why, why would, you know, a company put that in place? Well, if you've got cores that are not very efficient and you've got big fat execution units, you cannot drive them to utilization with a single thread. What do you do? You essentially fake a second thread, right? It's, it's utilization of resources. Uh, it's a great thing to do. You know, if, if I were in Intel's or AMD's place, I would have done the exact same thing. It's essentially 20% extra performance for maybe 5% extra power, mm -hmm. right? But that was 15 years ago, right? It's not the case anymore. Real cores always beat hyper threads or uh, simultaneous multi-threads, right? If you can give a customer a real core instead of a thread, they'll always take it unless the power impact is so high that it's not worth their while. It's not anymore with ARM, right? ARM-based CPUs are efficient. Ultra takes that to a, a whole different level. So that itself eliminates a or mitigates, at the very least, a decent amount of contention that happens. One, uh, one of the, the analogies that I like to use for simultaneous multi-threading is thinking about a one-bedroom apartment versus a two-bedroom apartment. And in a two-bedroom apartment, you have a chance to have a roommate, and that can reduce your overall expenses. But because you have two people living in the space, you're sharing the same kitchen, you're sharing the same bathroom, and the same fridge, right? And there's resource contention that happens that way. When there's resource sharing, now we get into a space where your roommate, no matter if you see them or not, they will have their food sitting there in the fridge, and you may notice that they are eating your ketchup. And you'll notice that the rate at which they consume the milk. Mm -hmm. And now data is now leaked between the shared resource, and we get into not only a lack of predictability, in your milk consumption, but you also see that there is information transfer in a security leak. So one of the things that hyperthreading actually exposes is an attack surface that is now susceptible to a side channel. Absolutely. And, and one of the first things that some Linux OS distributions had recommended when Spectre and Meltdown was out, you know, three years ago was turn off hyperthreading. Yep. So, and this is one of the reasons why cloud service providers will always rent out virtual machines, uh, with some exceptions, but most of the time they'll rent out virtual machines in pairs. Uh, you always get two vCPUs because these, these are two sibling threads right next to each other, and they really don't want to split them up between customers, right? So hyper-threading is one of those. The other is turbo frequencies, mm -hmm. right? Turbo frequencies are great if you're running a laptop. Most usage models, workloads on laptops are single-threaded. And if you can give them five gigahertz, that's amazing, right? You do that on the cloud. You've got a customer who's running workloads at five gigahertz today and at 2.8 the next day. So they're not happy, right? So CSPs would like for these kind of features to not be around, right? Many, many CSPs that we know, many of our customers disable these features yep. in, in their production environment for the sake of predictability. The, the, the cloud is not anymore about just pure throughput for the sake of throughput. Throughput always exists in the context of a service level agreement. And that's typically something like a 
you know, a, a latency with a 99th percentile or even more stringent than that. Right? These kind of things, turbo and turbo frequencies and SMT have a large role to play in getting tight and, and stringent SLAs. It's interesting you mentioned uh, turbo also as a way for uh, achieving predictability. I know that Intel themselves wrote a, a white paper about their own internal data center. This is the engineering data center that they use for doing all their tapeouts. Mm -hmm. And I know in Intel probably has like 200 tapeouts a year. They have so many different products. And they really care about predictability of performance. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure a tapeout takes exactly 48 hours or whatever, how long it takes for, for that entire set of jobs to complete. Right. They want to make sure it's 48, not 52, and not 40. Mm -hmm. right? right? Because they want to make sure that their data center is predictable so that they can schedule all their jobs in a timeline fashion that's project-oriented. And as a result, they've turned off hyper-threading in their data center because of that. Mm -hmm. So they are kind of also on board with this, recognizing that there's a time and place for hyper-threading and there's a, there's a time when you want predictability. Yeah, and, and if you look at cloud service providers that, that have moved beyond these features, you'll, you'll see that they're happy to tout these kind of predictability-type features to their customers. I mean, if you look at what Amazon recently said at their last reInvent, they had you know a focused area where they said, they, they focused on the fact that they don't have SMT, right? Clearly, customers see the value of that. Clearly, companies like Amazon see the value of that, right? Ultra was designed not to have hyper-threading or simultaneous multi-threading. It was designed to have predictable frequencies, right? And we are afforded that luxury because we've got headroom to not hit our TDPs all the time. So even if you run workloads that typically would tax a CPU, if you run Linpack on an Ultra that runs at 3 gigahertz max frequency, uh, you'll run all your cores at 3 gigahertz. Yep. And that's pretty impressive. Yep. So you mentioned Linpack. It's one of the great HPC workloads out there. Can you talk about some of the, the other uh, workloads that show affinity towards Ultra? You know, we've built, we built it for cloud computing. It's doing better on certain workloads mm -hmm. than the incumbent CPUs. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share some of those? I, I was going to say war stories, but kind of success stories. Yeah, we, we could spend the next hour talking about workloads and yep. benchmarks. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, this, like I said earlier, right, um, the cloud is not about one workload. It's about hundreds of workloads mm -hmm. and to make matters worse, all of them running at the same time, possibly, right? Uh, and if you take that analogy and move that towards microservices, then you've got, you know, thousands of things that are running on your CPU, talking to each other using, you know, REST APIs and not knowing where their consumer or their, their cust quote unquote customer really is. And so there's a bunch of things that are happening on a machine and infrastructure providers really have no visibility into that, right? So if you ask some of the top infrastructure folks at Google, is there a workload that represents everything that you run? <laughs> uh, chances are the answer will be, it's not easy or no, there isn't, right? Right. That said, the only standardized workload or the couple of standardized workloads in the cloud market are spec CPU, spec JBB. These are workloads that we look at very closely, mainly because the cloud has sort of standardized around these workloads. Mm. You know, the cloud is mostly about integer performance and it runs, you know, Java is still the main language of the cloud. 
There are other languages, but Java is sort of the glue that ties everything together even today. Uh, so these two workloads or benchmarks we look at very, very carefully. Now, we don't go to the extreme of optimizing our CPUs or our software stacks or our compilers for these benchmarks, but we do look at these very carefully. And if you've read the tech press reviews, we're doing pretty well on those, right? That said, we are always excited to check those boxes and move to real-world workloads, yep. right? The thing that makes our life a little easier is that the cloud thrives on open source workloads. So you can go download something and run it, right? Out of the box, it runs. There's no problems there, right? How do you run this at scale, which is how customers run it, right? This is where our relationships with our customers come in handy. Because running something like Cassandra on three nodes and running it on 100,000 nodes, uh, it's the exact same software stack. The, the bottlenecks are very different. Uh, the problems you have to deal with are very, very different at scale, right? These are the, some of the things that we get from working with customers. So we do care about real-world workloads. We do have a, a healthy list of uh, you know in-memory caching databases. We've got uh, RDBMSs that we look at very carefully. We study web and front-end type workloads. Machine learning is a big deal nowadays. You know, big data. Uh, we care about that deeply. But also, like you said, the cloud-native workloads, right? The things that Ultra was designed from the ground up mm -hmm. uh, to do well on, containerization, orchestration, CICD, function as a service. These are workloads that, uh, usages that we study in detail. Um, and, and Ultra seems to be doing very, very well at those. Great. So, Naren, you have a team of field application engineers that work with you. Mm -hmm. I was wondering... What is their process for helping a customer with particular workload on Ultra, and how do they debug performance issues? Ah, great question. So typically, we are brought in, I would say, majority of the time, we're brought in when there's a problem, right? a performance problem. So you might have a customer that says, hey, you guys have data that shows Ultra does better than XYZ CPU by 50%. Well, we measure the exact same thing in our labs, and it's 5%. So that's when we typically get brought in, right? So we do have a process, a you know, a, a methodology that we follow. It's probably decades old at this point. It's essentially working at the different layers of the stack, root causing problems at the higher level first before you move on to lower levels. Mm -hmm. You know, things like if you don't have enough memory in your machine and your workload ends up paging, right? Would you go change the algorithm underneath? No, there's really no point, right? You got to go address that issue uh, before you move on to lower level issues. Uh, eventually, as you make your way down the stack, you reach the microarchitecture, uh, where you know improvements at that level from a software point of view might not be that impactful. You, you should be happy to get 10-15% improvement in performance, but still, you do get in in some workloads you do get a lot more if, for example, you're vectorizing code. Right. So we do have a method, a process and a methodology, and it's a top-down type methodology, yep. but it's also iterative. As in, the moment you fix a problem, that problem appears somewhere else. Yep. Uh, in the end, it's all Amdahl's law, right? Uh, it's it's whack-a-mole. You go yep. whack one mole, something else pops up somewhere. So that's that's good job security for us because our, our job never ends. But typically, that's how we get brought in you know, at, uh, at a customer side, right? But what we've seen over, over the years is that ends up with very strong engineer to engineer relationships. 
and it goes way beyond just pure performance or workload tuning, right? We help customers, in some cases, who are public cloud providers, we help them target their messages to their customers, right? So it's not just about, our job is not just about, quote-unquote, selling to a CSP. We partner with them and help them sell the ultra solution to their customers uh, in turn as well. It definitely feels like a journey between our company and our customers to bring a product to market that all of their customers can use together as well. Totally, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so the great thing is that we have all of our multiple customers, we have your FAEs that are working together with them to bring the solution to market. It feels like the FEs that you have, the folks that you work with, Mm -hmm. they're just generally creative technical people solving problems that are different every single time for every single customer. It's never like one size fits all. It's never one size fits all. Definitely not in the cloud. My team, the way I would represent them, they're they're detectives, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, What we do is part science, it's part art. Uh, It's experience built over time to look at spreadsheets of data and to be able to tell, you know, I have a gut feeling this is where the problem is. That kind of a gut feel is really, really important uh, in what we do. Excellent. We were talking a little bit about the characteristics of your team. I imagine that as we grow as a company, you're looking to hire mm-hmm. and grow your team into new fields, new markets. What are the kinds of what are the kinds of things that that you look for in folks that you want to collaborate with and bring in onto your organization? There are some aspects to of our job that are very, very specific to what we do. A lot of this expertise is not something you get from a university degree by itself, right? These are learnings that you, you gather over time in the, quote unquote, in the field. And so when we look to hire performance engineers, we're looking for ideally for someone who understands what the cloud paradigm is about, right? The very fact that you know, the cloud is the only place where you can rent one CPU for a thousand hours or a thousand CPUs for one hour and you'll pay exactly the same, right? This doesn't happen anywhere else. So for someone to understand that uh, and to be genuinely excited about that, something we look for. Your performance methodologies, the ability to profile, to, to do some detective work to figure out where the bottlenecks are. That is something that we, we are always excited with, right? And it's something we look forward to when we hire someone. This, this is knowledge that you're typically, you, you don't get unless you've worked in the industry for a while. But above all else, the ability to learn, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to be genuinely excited with what you're doing and a, a sort of an open mind, right? Uh, we, we're always looking for folks from different backgrounds because we like to have a fresh set of eyes on these problems. There are times when we are so deep in some of these issues that we forget to come up for air, right? And having a fresh set of eyes we've seen in the past helps a lot. Uh, you get, you know, you get someone to point you in a completely different direction, right? And and that in uh, our, our job is 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 very very important. Yeah, and and the industry is changing. The education education these days is also acknowledging all the different paradigms that are happening in the cloud and the folks coming out of school have taken classes on some of the things that we're proactively working on in the field. And so it's a treat to get an intern who has already ramped up on some of the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really amazing. 
Totally. Yeah, I, I tell my kids the days of having one career are gone. Uh, the, the, the thing to do is you got to learn how to learn. Yep. Right. Yep. The cloud service providers have many different options, uh, different vendors that they can go to, but they're motivated to come to us and work with us to build a solution around Ultra, Ultra Max, and our future products. There must be something that motivates them to do that. Can you, can you, can you portray some of what you see on the field and the front lines? Mm -hmm. What brings those customers to Ampere? Right. So, Rewind five years ago, uh, there was one architecture that could be deployed at scale in the cloud, x86. Today, there's at least two. You know, the, the ARM ecosystem is very vibrant today from a software point of view. Things are a lot more mature. Choice is always good for customers, right? The ARM ecosystem on the server side is just starting. There's lots of headroom for growth. Things will change rapidly. Things will improve a lot more rapidly than legacy architectures. So customers like choice. Some of the things that our customers that have deployed the ultra at scale have said, one, things work very well out of the box. Things just work seamlessly, right? And again, going back to the ARM ecosystem and to all the CPU manufacturers that existed before us that are no longer that no longer exist, a lot of work has gone into the software ecosystem. The cloud thrives on open source software. Uh, most open source software that runs in the cloud today will run on ultra out of the box. If you go to our solutions website, solutions.amperecomputing.com, you'll see a nightly report from our regression framework yep. that essentially goes to the Docker hub, picks up the most popular Docker images, deploys them on ultra, and just runs them out of the box for functionality tests you'll see close to 100% acceptance rate, right? That's that's very telling. You could not do something like this five years ago. So things working seamlessly is, is something our customers report with Ultra. Out-of-the-box performance is something we've given a lot of thought to, right? CPUs, server CPUs are incredibly complex. To efficiently use everything that you've put into a server CPU, you need software to unlock that value. Once you go down that path, you realize very quickly that the existing solutions, the legacy solutions out there rely a lot on closed source software, closed source libraries, and a decent amount of tuning, right? We don't believe in that. And if you take Ultra out of the box with, you know, standard GCC type compilers or LLVM compilers, you run them with open source software stacks and libraries, you'll get really, really good performance out of the box. Now, if you want to put in the additional effort to go squeeze the last ounce of performance out of this, there's headroom, right? So that's something that they, our customers support. The third thing is cloud service providers adopt, they are at the cutting edge. They do adopt disruptive technologies, but the bar to meet that is very high in the sense that you've got to have very strong roadmaps. We've got a good track history as Ampere. We've got two products out in the market in the last two years that are built specifically for the cloud. We've got a very strong roadmap for the next three years. And as far as execution goes, we're relentless, right? These are things that cloud service providers love. I think there's a fourth one that you may have missed. I think the cloud service providers are so, they're very sophisticated customers mm -hmm. and they really enjoy the technical sparring with our team, your team, and the personalities, the personnel matters, right? I think we have these relationships that we cultivate through time across companies and I think sharp engineers like to work with other sharp engineers. Totally. And and in the job that we do, 
credibility is everything. Data is everything and credibility is everything. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Narain. This is Narain Nayak. He's the Director of Application Engineering at Ampere Computing. Thanks for listening and hope to join you again next time. Thanks, Narain. Thanks, Vaish. Thanks,